This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Fulia Pinar. I'm here today with Megan Carney to talk about her book, Island of Hope, Migration and Solidarity in the Mediterranean, published by the University of California Press in May 2021, so very recently. Thank you very much, Megan, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, at the New Books Network, we'd like to start with learning about our guests' backgrounds. So could you tell us about your background in anthropology and how you ended up writing this book? Sure. So I was an anthropology major as an undergrad at UCLA, and that was nearly now uh, 17, 18 years ago. And um, there was actually uh, a stint of fieldwork that I was completing as an undergraduate um, I was part of an honors thesis, and I had chosen to do my fieldwork in Italy because I had studied abroad there, and I was um, learning Italian. I was an Italian minor, and the scope of my research at the time was looking at foodways and shifts um, from sort of uh, people's shopping behaviors in Italy's very you know well-known uh, open-air markets to um, acquiring food through these supermarkets that had appeared only relatively recently. And it was during that stint of fieldwork um, and trying to understand sort of interactions in open air markets um, and interacting with vendors um, that I had um, a conversation, actually this instance of very um, explicit anti-Blackness. And um, at the time, I wasn't really familiar with that. Um, that language or as like a theoretical framework. Um, But I had asked one vendor who himself was a native of Florence and um, had was part of a family that had been selling food in these open air markets for generations. Um, I had asked him to just sort of elaborate on how he perceived interactions among vendors in the open air markets. And he alluded to um, some of the more sort of recent like newcomers in these spaces who had a migrant background, these vendors of a migrant background. And he said something along the lines of, I'm not a racist, but when you're in my house and sort of implied that there was a certain code, unspoken code um, of ethics among vendors that he felt these people of migrant background weren't adhering to. And it was this very like explicit sort of um, claiming of space within the market. And I 
And I walked away from that interaction um, then really sort of more interested in the broader politics of migration um, as they were unfolding in Italy at the time. Um, But I didn't decide to pursue that uh, line of inquiry, at least not in Italy at the time. So actually for my um, dissertation research, I, um, a couple years after that stint of fieldwork in Italy, I attended um, or enrolled at UC Santa Barbara in the anthropology program as a PhD student and um, decided that I wanted to study migrant women's experiences um, uh, of coming to the United States from Mexico and Central America, and more specifically, trying to understand um, their experiences of food insecurity, both in their countries of origin and then also upon um, coming to the United States and caring for their families, et cetera. Um, But I always, in the back of my mind, had um, planned to return to Italy and maintain research projects in both settings, both in the U.S. and and in Italy. And so around the time that I was finishing my um, dissertation, which was in like 2011, 2012, the Arab Spring happened. Um, And obviously that pulled my attention. And upon finishing my dissertation and graduating, I uh, started postdoctoral research um, in southern Italy and more specifically Sicily, um, looking at the politics of migrant reception. Um, and sort of the rest is, is, is history. I embarked on a multiple year project um, doing various phases of fieldwork um, in Sicily primarily. And in the process of um, doing this work, my editor with University of California Press, Kate Marshall, um, who had worked with me on my first book, she was listening to me talk about the project and could tell how passionate I was. And um, I didn't really have a cohesive idea yet for a book, but she suggested to me very generously, like, you should really consider um, developing this into a book project. And so here we are in 2021 and and there is a book. <laughs> yeah. Um. So can you tell us, about um, your participants and your methodology um, for for this particular book? Yeah, so unlike, in some ways, unlike much of the contemporary literature within anthropology and related disciplines, um, ethnographies of migration, the um, sort of, you know, primary subjects um, in this book are not migrants. Um, and I do say at one point in the book's introduction that I have explicitly chosen not to focus so much on the experiences of migrants, um, but with the caveat that it's extremely important that we um, bring migrant voices to the fore, especially in designing any kinds of policies that directly affect those who are migrating um, or those who have been displaced um, and have undergone dispossession. But in any case, the, the heart of the book is really focused on the experiences of those who are involved in various um, aspects of migrant reception in Sicily, which also includes many people of a migrant background, um, because inevitably those who who migrate um, into Southern Europe, primarily through Sicily, 
um, many of them ultimately remain there and become sort of politicized uh, or radicalized um, in and desiring to be part of the broader network of migrant rece- reception, but also um, these uh, sort of corollary um, efforts to mobilize politically to advance the rights of migrants in Italy. So those are really like the primary subjects. Those who are those those are the folks that I'm writing about in this book. Um, which includes many Siciliani or Sicilians. And I don't, um, I want to just uh, sort of preface this with um, a very clear statement of, I am not in any um, way wanting to generalize or speak on behalf of all Sicilians. Um, that is absolutely not the case. Um, Sicilians are a very di- diverse group of people, very diverse histories, very diverse political sentiments and attitudes, especially on matters of migration. Um, so, but, but by and large, my, my sample or those that I'm interviewing and talking about um, really reflect those who, who have, who, who claim Sicilian heritage. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit more about the spatial aspects? So uh, can you tell us about Italy's um migrant reception system and how the migrant reception system is affected by the economic shifts in Italy and in Europe in general? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think it's important to allude to sort of the deeper history in the last couple of decades um, within Italy and Europe as it concerns migration. So um, migration through Southern Europe is not a new phenomenon has been unfolding um, or happening for for multiple decades. And um, it's sort of always treated as an emergency. Um, That's that's one of the primary critiques is that Italy and much of Southern Europe does not have a comprehensive system of migrant reception. And actually, as some of my informants would describe, they say it's a non-system or a system of non-reception. Um, and this isn't by accident either. It's not a, a broken system. It's, it's working as it's designed, um, which we can come back to um, later. But so Italy has um, it's sort of a frontline community. And within Italy, Sicily being an island um, at the tip of southern Italy and very close to the African continent, Italy is really has been on the front lines of much of the migration that is occurring through the central Mediterranean. Um, so arrivals um, of people by boat, um, interceptions uh, or uh, uh, search and rescue operations happening in the Mediterranean, primarily by humanita- humanitarian organizations. Many of those that are intercepted at sea are, are brought to one of Sicily's various ports. Um, so there's sort of this um, echoing among uh, from Sicily and then from Italy in the broader context of the European uh, Union that Italy and Sicily have been abandoned um, by the rest of Europe in responding to migration. Um, and that Europe has not provided sort of adequate support or the rest of um, the EU has not provided adequate support in responding to this migration. So you'll often hear sort of this refrain among many of Italy's politicians and then also within Sicily 
um, that migration is not a an Italian problem, um, that the recent um, so-called like refugee crisis, as it's been framed by various different political actors or humanitarian crisis or migration crisis, that these are not um, the unique responsibility or sole responsibility of Italy or Sicily, but that um, the rest of the EU is implicated in this in this phenomenon and should be um, sharing in responsibility. Um, so uh, in in the last decade, um, much of the sort of response by Italy and also by Sicily to migration has been impeded by various waves of austerity, these, these austerity measures that have um, translated to significant cuts in public spending, including within the realm of um, migrant reception activities. Yeah. Um, what about Sicily's positionality in Italy? Mm-hmm. So Sicily joined the, um, was brought into very forcefully into the formation of Italy as a nation state in the mid 1800s. Um, and Sicily, um, before that, uh, had undergone sort of various phases of conquest and colonization by different groups. Um, it's, you know, often talked about is like this melting pot of the Mediterranean. Um, Sicilians themselves like allude to having this sort of um, mixed heritage um, from different phases of colonization and conquest of the island. But so Italy is sort of perceived as by many Sicilians as sort of the, the most recent colonizers of of the island. And um, in many ways, the sort of contemporary political and economic conditions on the island um, speak to this deeper history of Italy's colonization. And um, it was Antonio Gramsci who talked about Sicily as being one of Italy's internal colonies from which the nation state extracted labor and also raw materials. Um, and it's, and in many ways, those dynamics persist today. Um, and so there's, even though Sicily has um, this like autonomous, semi-autonomous status, um, a few other regions also maintain the semi-autonomous status within the larger context of the Italian nation state. Um, Sicily also is very much at the behest of Italian politics. So decisions that are made in Rome within Italy's central government do have direct consequences for the uh, material realities of Sicilians. Um, and so there's this struggle um, among those in Sicily to feel a real, a real sense of autonomy um, and also a struggle for their dignity. Um, it, Italy has this very fraught history, um, sort of this division between the North and South. Um, Southerners, Southern Italians um, have been racialized um, and stereotyped. Um, there's, and, and, and Southern Italians are acutely aware, very aware of sort of the ways that the Italian nation state and, and to, to some extent, the rest of Europe has employed these very ori- orient- orientalist discourses in talking about southern Italy and Sicily. Um, and it's sort of this means through which uh, Italy and the rest of the EU asserts its dominance 
over the region um, and maintains this marginal status of Sicilians and also is used to justify um, uh, restricting um, sort of resource allocation or distribution to Sicily. It's used to justify um, the withholding of of material resources and also other forms of support from the island. Yeah, and in terms of uh, managing migration, what kinds of roles and responsibilities are assigned to Sicily in managing the asymmetrical developments in Italy and migration in Europe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's long been said, like, Sicilians, those that I have spent much time with over the past several years, um, will say that, you know, Italy, talking about the central government and also those their counterparts in the north, um, think about Sicily as responsible for its own problems. So, um, you know, that nearly half of Sicily's population is at risk for poverty. Um, that organized crime continues to be a daily reality, um, primarily through um, La Costa Nostra or um, mafiosi. And um, it, it, that extends, that that sort of logic extends into the realm of migrant reception. So, um, Many of those that I interviewed involved in various aspects of receiving migrants and helping sort of facilitate a process of integration feel that Italy has abandoned them to this task and that Sicily um, is, quote unquote, responsible for migrant reception. Um, And so um, in some respects, I would say that actually for many, like this is a source of, of pride um, that that the rest of Europe is actually looking often to Sicily as a model or um, wanting sort of advice or guidance in how to facilitate migrant reception and integration. Um, the mayor of Palermo, uh, Leo Luca Orlando, is like this globally renowned figure for being very open to um, receiving migrants and sponsoring many programs that are actually um, in uh, that challenge, directly challenge policies around immigration enforced by the Italy central government. Um, so, but, but on the other hand, um, Sicily is, like I alluded to, is, is struggling, um, you know, the, the material circumstances of many Siciliani, they, they are living in conditions of poverty. Um, and thus there is, there is, and, and also Sicily was particularly um, sort of brutalized during Italy's um, various phases of economic austerity. Um, and uh, actually rewinding a bit. So after the global uh, financial crisis um, of 2007, 2008, a few years after that, um, Italy was experiencing a a very profound sovereign debt crisis. Um, and there was a discourse at the time that Sicily was actually to blame for, for economic problems being experienced in the North. And so Italy um, did not refrain from implementing very severe austerity measures on those in Sicily. And um, so Sicily is still recovering from the fallout of those austerity measures. Um, and that had a direct impact on the island's capacity to, to sort of adequately respond to uh, more recent 
waves of migration. Yeah, and you're showing that um, the neoliberal austerity measures in Italy are quite interrelated with the care labor and solidarity work for migrants in Sicily. So can mm-hmm. you tell us a bit more about these relations between uh, these neoliberal austerity measures, these roles assigned to Sicily, and how this shapes the activist realm? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one of the sort of primary theoretical threads throughout the book is um, thinking about affective dimensions of neoliberalism. Um, and in the case of, I'm talking about the affective dimensions as they um, impact both citizens and non-citizens. So in the case of citizens and, and more specifically um, Siciliani, there is this sort of sense of um, there's been this attempt to like cultivate them as indebted subjects. Um, and in the case of migrants, Um, or non-citizens, they are sort of, many of them, right, have experienced conditions of illegality um, or been thrust into conditions of illegality. And both, so then both groups, right, are like pushed to the margins in different ways um, and conditioned to have a certain affective disposition. Um, So I argue that um, many of the contemporary mobilizations around migrant solidarity which index the politics of becoming in that they are aspirational. These are aspirational efforts. Um, the project of migrant solidarity is an aspirational one, right? So um, something that people are striving toward and it's sort of always imperfect and um, reveals its own sort of internal inequalities. Um, but in any case, there is this motivation among both citizens and non-citizens to uh, struggle toward something different in transforming their material and affective possibilities, um, mobilizing um, for political change, and um, sort of demanding and advocating for the dignity and um, expanded rights of all. Um, so it's this convergence of the politics of austerity uh, along with sort of the politics of migration where these groups converge um, and uh, and build coalitions. Yeah. Um, and um, in chapter four, you're writing about the particular configuration of caring labor as sort of this migrant solidarity work. So can you tell us about what kinds of contributions does migrant solidarity work offer for the scholarship and social policies on care? Hmm. Well, that's a really, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think, you know, we first probably want to make the case for, again, the broader context of where migrant solidarity is originating from, um, or where these sort of mobilizations um, between citizens and non-citizens are originating from. And in the context of Italy, more specifically, um, Andrea Mulebach um, has talked about uh, several years ago um, with her ethnography, The Moral Moral Neoliberal, how Italy at the time had identified loneliness as this new challenge among Italian citizens. Um, And one of the many crises um, 
within um, Italy right now, and sort of there's this this like this anxiety or moral panic around is stagnant um, population growth, um, stagnant fertility rates, and so essentially this is to say that the reproduction of society itself is at stake. Um, and after, you know, a decade of, of economic austerity measures and inadequate responses by the state um, for addressing um, migration has left this, right, these, you know, these feelings of despair, malaise um, among many of Italy's citizens and non-citizens. And so what I'm talking about in this book, um, what I'm trying to understand and analyze are sort of these new spaces of care um, within the context of migrant solidarity and how a caring labor is necessitated by these conditions, these converging conditions, um, all of which are really the result of um, neoliberal policymaking um, racial capitalism, but then how is migrant solidarity a, an effort or attempt to reconfigure the social organization of care and to um, strive toward alternatives um, that will translate to the reproduction of society, but a society that is liberating for all? Um, and so, how you know, I, I argue that these migrant solidarity efforts. Um, are not sort of detached from the broader context of neoliberal racial capitalism. Um, in fact, they are very much articulating with while also subverting um, these, these logics. Um, and so, um, but, essentially, but essentially, I mean, they are uh, sort of calling into question the very need for such types of caring labor to exist. Um, and so going back to your original question, um, you know, how, how might these formations around sort of in the name of migrant solidarity translate to changes in social policies and such? Um, that is definitely a, a focus or emphasis of these social formations. Um, but I think first and foremost, uh, the, the reasons that people are organizing um, and developing these um, coalitions is really for that um, the transformations in people's collective material and effective well-being. Um, and so that's happening at the, really the scale of communities, local communities. Um, but is but nonetheless, anyone involved in that work still emphasizes the need for political mobilization that will lead to broader structural changes in the long term. But those, but they realize like those are not so immediate um, and will take more time. Yeah. And um, basically, and in this chapter, you're also telling us that the helping to migrants, migratory projects uh, Mm -hmm. is also a part of this caring labor this um, migration solidarity work so um, you write on how activists are trying to help migrants actualize 
their dreams and hopes about their lives. So what does the word project entail here? Is it used in a similar way to that of NGO projects or research projects? Or is it like a counter project, so so to say, about migrants' futures? Because you also mentioned the relationship between solidarity work and neoliberal austerity measures. So I'm wondering, um, mm-hmm. what does the project language sits here? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think you're right. I um, it, it is like a counter project, right? Um, organizing against oppressive forces. So the migratory project is not that which is like envisioned and imposed by the state apparatus, but rather um, the uh, more specific ad- adjective um, desires for autonomy and belonging as defined and articulated by migrants themselves. Um, so that is yeah, that is a defining component of solidarity work, and those um, committed to it is helping to facilitate the realization of these migratory projects um, as as best as possible. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah. Um, and if we move into the chapter five, edible solidarities. So you look at some multicultural restaurants here. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us about um, how the forms of solidarity in these private establishments um, kind of shape um, activism and migrant solidarity compared to the voluntary activist networks that you're writing on in chapter four? Yeah. Um, so, um, well, first of all, I, I, I wanted to write about um, these particular efforts happening around food in Sicily, um, because for, for a number of reasons, um, one, because food in has long been sort of recognized as a powerful, um, space for political mobilization, um, and building solidarities and, um, multi-group coalitions, um, and especially in the Italian context, Italy has this history of, um, solidarity purchasing groups or Gruppi di Acquisti Solidali. Um, and it's also the like birthplace of the slow food movement. Um, so the uh, establishments, um, these, these two restaurants um, where I was doing much of this research, uh, one is in Palermo and one is in Agrigento. Um, and they, they create these fusion foods combining culinary um practices from uh, from Sicily, from Italy more broadly, and from throughout um, the African continent, as well as um, many of the those who are working in these spaces also have um, migrated from throughout the Middle East. So uh, what's really interesting about these projects is their explicit commitment to um, upholding migrant ways of knowing and um, spotlighting their their culinary knowledge, um, making that um, really part of 
the identity of the restaurant itself. Um, so um, people of a migrant background in these spaces have a very prominent role um, in the work that these restaurants are doing and the foods that they're producing. Um, but they also, they're, they're not just as many of uh, my research collaborator, collaborators say, and specifically in that chapter, um, I highlight how they are always saying this is not just about the food. Here, it's, it's about more than just the food. Um, they put a really strong emphasis on, um, again, like various forms of uh, political mobilization. So um, they are writing, uh, you know, calls for solidarity that are are published in a local newspaper and meeting with local politicians and um, actively supporting humanitarian organizations that are performing search and rescue operations in the Mediterranean. Um, they have uh, vocational programs, um, one in particular, this restaurant, Ginger, um, the head chef, Marem, Chef Marem, who actually was, uh, who won the title, um, world champion title on sort of Italy's equivalent of Top Chef. But um, she created this project, Project Nora, which is specifically for women of a migrant background um, to learn how to work in kitchens and restaurants and um, develop careers for themselves um, that will translate to improved material uh, well-being for their for themselves and their families. Um, so they have this explicit focus on migrant integration, and then they're also involved in work that has really nothing to do with food. They they sponsor they 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 uh, host various types of community events to bring various people in um, and share that space. Um, and they, um, one, one of the restaurants, the one in Palermo has, it's, is, uh, adjacent to this co-working space that, um, that houses various organizations, um, and groups that are involved in sort of advocacy work and, um, and social justice, uh, projects, um, or, and also human rights organizations. So, um, yeah, they're 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 both um, very unique, um, but doing very important work. And um, the ways that they are, you know, cultivating these fusion foods is is not, as I say in the chapter, is really not for the purpose of sort of like appealing to like a per particular market niche and like appropriating these foreign foods, right, for um, consumption by an elite class of consumers. That's not at all what they're about. Um, more <laughs> yeah um can you tell uh, more about what specific role does food play here then in creating these forms of care and solidarity because food mm -hmm. is also something about home something about mm -hmm. belonging you know those feelings so can you tell us about the food part of this yeah um so food is um an important site site of care uh, so in terms of thinking about like what these spaces are doing in reconfiguring um, the social organization of care in in prominently featuring uh, foods that are really much informed by migrants backgrounds, um, they're sort of challenging um, the hostile, broader, more hostile environment um, that is sort of anti-migrant in Italy. Um, and they're 
they're also creating spaces for other forms of belonging and and participa- uh, participation or even citizenship. So I talk about um, in this chapter how uh, these spaces around fusion foods are promoting other types of citizenship, like social, cultural, economic citizenship, um, as an alternative to political citizenship. And this is really important um, given the contemporary sort of political climate in Italy and much of Europe, where the far right has has made a uh, comeback and is sort of dominating much of the um, national and um, conversation around migration. So, um, yeah, food then is is a space for um, promoting these other forms of belonging, but also as a site of care for for nurturing social relations between citizens and non-citizens and actively working toward these transformations and material uh, well-being, effective well-being that are not just benefiting the individual, but are translating to um, transformations in in collectives, um, among collectives. Yeah, amazing. And and both of these restaurants, um, Motivolti and Ginger, I believe, um, mm-hmm. we also see that there is a commitment to share one's destiny. And I would like right. you to talk a bit about this too. So um, how, like, what does the destiny, the language of destiny entail here? Is it something timeless like fate or is it something specifically about the future? Because the aspirations, mm-hmm. the hopes, the future is like um, a great theme in your book. So I'm wondering what does this sharing one's destiny mean? Yeah. Yeah. So these um, sites of migrant solidarity work are very much um, future making projects, right? They are very much sort of grounded in alternative futures. Um, and that's why I say they they index a politics of becoming. They are aspirational. Um, and so um, in in the case of Multivolti and Ginger, um, they're... Uh, they're 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 cultivating this social capital um, that will translate to um, concrete acts of solidarity that assist all in being more resilient to future crises. So then, sharing one's destiny is is very much about redistributing risk among a collective, both now and into the future, um, and. You know, in some ways, like I think um, to to bring it back, I guess, closer to home here, uh, well, in the U.S. Um, and, and some of the anti-racist politics um, and social movements that are underway right now. And this talk about, you know, are you an ally or are you a co-conspirator? Um, the, in the case of Sicily and um, these, these coalitions between citizens and non-citizens, um, there's a real sense of absorbing risk, right, within the collective and um, not just being an ally to migrants um, and seeking to, like, advance their struggles against these broader structures of oppression and and restrictive immigration policies um, and economic regimes that attempt to exploit them and extract their labor um, and withhold their formal belonging. but um, but really to put for citizens to put themselves on the line as well, right? That they that 
there's this understanding that they are implicated in this struggle um, and that no matter what, that they will, they, they do share each other's fate. Um, and that, and that is felt in very like palpable material ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very collective approach. You're actually showing us um, an alternative way of existing as a human being as well, not just as activists or migrants, but, but as a, as a human really to exist in something else apart from the individual. Right. And um, I'm wondering about the role that migrant youth involvement uh, has here that you touch upon in chapter six. Um, so you specifically work on the migrant youth's involvement in creating films, other media forms, and activism in chapter six. And can you tell us um, what specific role does their involvement play in terms of this kind of a solidarity and care work and this kind of an existence, really? Sure. Um, so... Yeah, I kind of posed this question in that chapter, um, Caring for the Future. Um, I posed the question, to what extent are migrant youth um, accounted for or unaccounted for in migrant solidarity efforts? And I talk about um, a few different sort of initiatives that center on migrant youth. And in the end, um, I sort of conclude that some initiatives are more successful in, than others in advancing um, the rights of migrant youth. But there's a there's a complicated history around governance um, as it pertains to youth. So I talk about the ways that migrant youth, not just in Italy, but around much of the world, um, are perceived by state and humanitarian actors often th through this binary, like they're either victims um, that have to be rescued um, from these spaces of vulnerability where they are subject to exploitation by various different actors um, or as a potential problem, as potential criminals that have to be rehabilitated. And so in short, across these various sites of, of governance, migrant youth um, are very infrequently afforded autonomy and agency over their own fates. Um, and there's also, you know, a sort of longer um, history about uh, childhood, right? And, um, you know, the moral, political dimensions of, of childhood. Um, and so there's there are questions about to what extent are migrant youth um, able to make decisions for their own well-being? Um, to what extent or at what age is it appropriate for someone to migrate? And I think, you know, as an anthropologist, like we can recognize that much of the ways that we think about childhood or youth in the U.S. and also in Europe or in the global north is informed by this kind of Eurocentric um, framing um, of, of childhood um, and, and the moral and political um, dimensions of it. So anyway, these efforts um, that I talk about, I talk about like a participatory film laboratory that exists for the explicit purpose of both um, 
foregrounding migrants, migrant narratives, and especially the narratives of migrant youth, and involving them in various media projects, specifically filmmaking, um, to bring their experiences to broader audiences, um, who then might be um, motivated to mobilize on behalf of um, these youth, and also to demand uh, broader structural changes to the way that Italy handles immigration. Um, but also, it's this film laboratory is a is a vocational program. It exists to help facilitate the entry of people of a migrant background into the the realm of Italian cinema, um, because uh, you know that is that exists as a professional field, and um, there are career opportunities therein. Um, so uh, there's then you know I talk about some like group homes that exist for migrant youth outside of sort of the, you know, institutional settings that are more state sponsored um, and how they are, um, you know, helping to um, integrate migrant youth and, um, you know, some of the the successes and failures that exist within those group home settings. Um, And, um, and then I also talk about, yeah, actors like UNICEF um, and the ways that they uh, sort of a, speak for, do a lot of speaking for um, migrant youth um, and sort of still adhere to this binary way of thinking about um, uh, migrant youth as, as victims or as potential problems um, and not really affording them uh, agency. So there's a couple of vignettes in this chapter um, that involve events that were sponsored by UNICEF. Um, one in in the city of Catania that was a a fundraiser for UNICEF, um, and then uh, this mock boat rescue that happened um, in Palermo, close to the port, uh, that was held concurrently with the G7 meetings that were happening on the island at the time. And wanting to bring attention, the, the the purpose of the event was really to bring attention to the ongoing tragedy of migrant deaths at sea, um, and specifically uh, of children and youth. So, I want to ask you now about your um, the final chapter of your book. So, the final touches that you made on the book corresponded to the COVID nineteen process. Uh, which has been experienced in Italy with immense fear, panic, and restrictions. So I'm wondering how did this process affect the care labor and mm-hmm. solidarity work in your field site? Mm-hmm. Um, well, so Sicily was at, was particularly at a disadvantage uh, with the pandemic, uh, much because of the lingering effects of economic austerity measures um, and the consequences of those measures for the public health um, and uh, health system in Sicily. Uh, Many would argue that the health system was already on the brink of collapse in Sicily prior to the pandemic. Um, And and also uh, sort of the economic crisis that has uh, been worsened by the pandemic in Sicily. Many Many in Sicily labor primarily through sort of informal ac- economic activities, and they were thus ineligible for um, uh, 
economic stimulus payments um, and other forms of state-sponsored support that came with the pandemic. Um, so many in Sicily were excluded from those forms of state support. Um, and then also tourism is just one of Sicily's primary um, you know, economic activities, and that has completely come to a halt uh, during the pandemic. And so the poverty that was was there already um, has in many ways been amplified by the pandemic. And there have been very legitimate concerns about um, organized crime stepping in to intervene um, in these crises, the, the economic crisis in Sicily right now in particular. So it was both sort of underprepared um, because of these policies that had been orchestrated by the central Italian government um, years prior uh, in its health sector, as well as, um, uh, you know, stifled economically um, by the pandemic. And early on, there were there were really no cases of COVID um, in the region. Uh, COVID struck Italy more first in the north. It, um, a few regions in the north were particularly um, uh, were hit significantly by the pandemic. It's been more since like last summer when actually tourism picked up a little bit within Italy and then in Southern Europe that um, COVID cases then were rising. Um, and it's only in like the last month that um, Sicily is no longer um, designated as a red or orange zone um, as it's been, the, the system has been organized in response to the pandemic. And so Sicilians for the first time in a very long time are have been afforded um, more mobility. They can leave their homes. Um, they can be out in public. There is the, the vaccination program is um, is underway, and and many are being vaccinated. Um, and while all of this has been happening, migration across the central Mediterranean has not has not really stopped. Um, there are, to some extent, probably more people fleeing. Um, uh, where people were migrating from before, there's there's been um, sort of a, a marked increase in that migration because of poor responses to the pandemic in many of these migrant sending countries. Um, and yet, early on in the pandemic, Sicily had officially closed its ports um, and was not facilitating any reception activities, specifically disembarkation. Um, it continued to criminalize organizations, humanitarian organizations that were performing search and rescue um, operations at sea. Um, last summer, uh, the, the regional governor of Sicily mandated that all reception centers housing migrants close um, and that migrants be transferred to other parts of Italy. Um, newly arrived migrants were being quarantined on cruise ships, just like uh, a short distance off of Sicily's shores. Um, and there was a lot of controversy around that. Um, so, yeah, and it, it's, of course, like all other ethnographers, I've been doing some, you know, observations remotely um, and and staying in conversation with my research collaborators there to understand what their experience has been like um, during the past year or longer um, and how uh, sort of the conditions imposed by the pandemic, like 
how they've been able to continue practices of mutual aid and solidarity. Um, and, um, and it, and it's, and it's been challenging for sure. Um, but, um, those networks that were, that have been cultivated in the last several years have been, have proven to be extremely important for addressing people's basic needs, um, for, um, helping to redistribute resources among collectives, like, you know, just like food, um, food distribution sites, um, and, um, you know, communicating about, um, you know, where people can access, um, resources or, um, or get to, or site, you know, sites of healthcare, um, should they need it, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. These are so crucial during this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so they're continuing, um, in a way and they're becoming more visible in some senses with their help. Yeah. But, but I mean, like the restaurants, for instance, that I document in, in chapter five of the book talking about edible solidarities, like they, like all other businesses, they were, they were forced to close their doors to in-person dining. Um, but they were, you know, still sort of continuing with other activities. They were engaged in, um, in uh, pr preparing meals and distributing meals um, to, to healthcare workers, to others in their communities who were, you know, lesser means um, of lesser means. Um, yeah. And there have been, you know, lots of uh, crowdfunding efforts to um, support these businesses while they've, they've had to be closed. Yeah. So they're, they're still in business though, right? They, they are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Glad to hear that. Well, um, thank you for taking us through your book and your thinking. I think we have taken up a lot of your time. So I will now move into my last question. So what are you working on now or what would be your next project? Um, yeah, well, in Italy, I, um, I was supposed to be there right now, actually, on a Fulbright, um, for obvious reasons, had to postpone um, until next year. But I will be located at the Migration Policy Center, which is part of the U European University Institute in Florence, and doing some work on um, food-related displacement and migration in uh, among transnational migratory networks between Africa and Europe, um, and convening um, various researchers from across Europe who are doing uh, work on the intersections of food and migration and trying to develop more integrated policy responses um, as climate change uh, translates to even more food-related, environmental-related displacement. And then I, during that, during that time, I'm, I'm gearing up right now, um, collecting some, some data, but I plan to spend some time again in Sicily looking at um, recovery from the pandemic, um, sort of the afterlives of pandemic and, um, and, and, you know, the implications of the pandemic for solidarity efforts, for citizenship uh, struggles, for um, changes to Italy's citizenship laws. Um, and then there is the, the film, the, the film lab that I mentioned, um, we've been in conversation for some time about um, doing a, a lab together that would include 
um, migrant youth working alongside um, students from my own university and then another colleague's university in the UK uh, in um, engaged collaborative research projects and um, and alternative storytelling, uh, participatory storytelling, primarily through short short videos and film. Um, so I hope that we can resume sort of planning for an iteration of the lab that includes students working with migrant youth together in, in these participatory ethnographic activities in, in Palermo. Well, yeah, they all sound so amazing and very impressive. We'll certainly be looking forward to your next projects. Uh, thank you very much, Megan, for your time, for joining us and for sharing your insights with us. Thank you so much. This is a great conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. I'm your host, Fulia Pinar. This discussion of Island of Hope, Migration and Solidarity in the Mediterranean, published by the University of California Press, is brought to you by the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.